What's up, everybody? Welcome to Bomb City Locker Room Talk Podcast. You're listening to episode 122. In our last episode, we took a comprehensive look at the Johnny Frank Garrett case, unveiling its intricate ties to the J. Kelly Pinkerton case and the profound and enduring impact these cases had on the Amarillo Police Department. On this episode, we embark on a deeper exploration as we delve into the harrowing trial of Johnny Frank Garrett. Throughout this episode, we will meticulously dissect the chilling specifics of the murders that shook Amarillo to its core. We will shine a spotlight on Johnny's early life, shedding light on the hardships and traumas he endured, offering a more comprehensive understanding of the complex factors surrounding this perplexing case. Given the surge in requests for true crime narratives, especially during this Halloween season, we invite you to grab a refreshing beverage, settle into a cozy spot, and join us as we continue to uncover the bone-chilling mysteries of Amarillo in Peril, Part 2. Johnny Frank Garrett was born on Christmas Eve in 1963 in the state of Oklahoma. His life was characterized by challenges right from the start. At a young age, Johnny's parents, Charlotte Cameron and her husband, separated. The family struggled financially, and Charlotte's role as a single parent during the 1960s presented significant difficulties for her and her children. Johnny's upbringing unfolded in a turbulent environment where a series of stepfathers entered and exited his life. It seemed that as soon as one stepfather departed, another would take his place. Charlotte's choice of partners often reflected her financial limitations, and her children bore the consequences of these decisions. This tumultuous family dynamic led to Johnny Frank Garrett accumulating a substantial record with the Texas Youth Council. His childhood was marked by hardship, exacerbated by his learning difficulties. Johnny faced significant challenges with literacy, which necessitated his enrollment in special education classes. Even by the time he reached the sixth grade, reading remained an obstacle for him. Photographs of a young Johnny depict a boy with prominent teeth, bright blue eyes, and an innocent, hopeful expression, despite the formidable difficulties he had already encountered. In 1977, when Johnny turned 14, his teachers noticed a significant shift in his behavior. Unbeknownst to them, he was enduring a nightmare situation at home. His current stepfather, who was only slightly older than Johnny, had become subjecting him to abuse, intensifying the hardships he faced in life. As a teenager, he was subjected to harrowing and systemic physical and sexual abuse, The burden of shame weighed heavily on him for the deeds he had been forced to commit. Throughout this ordeal, he found himself without protection of support. Johnny had suffered abuse from multiple stepfathers, and family members had introduced him to alcohol and drugs at a shockingly young age. Despite his involvement with the juvenile system over the years, it was painfully clear that he needed help and intervention, yet no adults came forward to offer any assistance. The bishop at St. Francis Convent in Amarillo had known Johnny for most of his life and was aware that Johnny would occasionally seek refuge by sleeping under the bleachers at the local high school. 
likely as a means to escape the abuse he endured at home. Just two days after his arrest for the murder of Sister Tadea, an arraignment took place before Judge, before Judge George Dallin. During the arraignment, Johnny maintained his innocence and disavowed a confession he had allegedly made to the police within hours of his arrest. He also mentioned that he had visited the St. Francis convent on multiple occasions before Sister Tadea's death. At this point, Johnny had not yet been assigned legal representation. However, during the hearing, an attorney named Bill Coleus unexpectedly stepped forward, expressing his desire to represent Garrett. This came as a surprise to Johnny and his family, as they were unfamiliar with how the legal system operated. Judge Dallin approved Coleus to represent Garrett. Later, another attorney named Phil Jordan was appointed to assist in Garrett's defense. Jordan had previously worked as a prosecutor for District Attorney Danny Hill and had a personal connection with him. While Johnny awaited his trial in jail, he had limited interaction with his attorneys and remained mostly isolated from the legal proceedings. He expressed concerns to his mother, Charlotte, and both of them harbored doubts about the situation. Nonetheless, they opted to place their confidence in the two men anticipating that they would exert their utmost efforts in Johnny's defense. In May 1982, three months prior to Johnny Frank Garrett's trial, another murder case unfolded in a different part of Texas. The defendant in this case was J. Kelly Pinkerton, a 19-year-old individual we discussed on the previous episode. At the age of 17, Pinkerton had been involved in two separate crimes where he brutally assaulted, raped, and killed two women in the Amarillo area. Following his apprehension, Pinkerton's cocky demeanor and complete lack of remorse for his crimes offended many and stoked the public outrage. Adding to the hysteria, the realization that the second assault on Sherry Lynn Welsh might have been entirely preventable, leaving Amarillo's law enforcement agencies deeply troubled. It came as no surprise that there was a consensus that J. Kelly Pinkerton would not receive a fair trial in Amarillo. Consequently, the decision was made to relocate his trial to El Paso, Texas. However, mere months later, Johnny Frank Garrett did not receive the same privileges. Despite being the same age as Pinkerton at the time of the crime, Johnny's case was slated to be tried in the same Amarillo court before the same judge. His case was equally, if not more, high profile than Pinkerton's. Johnny Frank Garrett faced accusations of brutally assaulting, raping, and murdering a woman who had dedicated her life to serving Christ. This starkly set Johnny Frank Garrett's case apart, even when compared to Pinkerton's crimes. In the eyes of the general public, Johnny Frank Garrett was perceived as just another teenager delinquent who had taken the life of one of Amarillo's most vulnerable, vulnerable residents. The city's residents were furious and clamored for justice. If there was ever an example of a case where a defendant was tried by the court of public opinion, this case epitomized it. At the time, the police chief was permitted to publicly declare, we feel there's no doubt we got our man. The notoriety and the overwhelming public outcry surrounding Sister Benz's death necessitated a change of venue for the trial. Despite Garrett's lawyer requesting a change of venue on two separate occasions, the state district judge, George Dallin, rejected the request, not once, but twice. His rationale was that the knowledge of the crime was just as widespread in other parts of Texas as it was in Amarillo, making a change of venue seem futile. 
The fact that these same arrangements could have applied to the Pinkerton trial was brushed aside. The judge had made his decision, and Johnny Frank Garrett's trial would proceed in Amarillo. During the early 1980s, the phenomenon known as the Satanic Panic was in full swing. It was a climate that added further complexity to Johnny Frank Garrett's defense. The late 1960s had concluded with the gruesome Tate-Libianca murders, exploited by the media to construct a narrative of occultism. The bizarre Manson family and the chilling helter-skelter theory presented by prosecutor Vincent Bogosi, along with Charles Manson's own shocking statements, only fueled the public's morbid fascination. As the 1970s transitioned to the 1980s, violent crimes seemed to become more prevalent, more bizarre, and more sensationalized. In 1975, the DeFeo family murders in Amityville, New York, shocked the nation. The heinous nature of the crime involving the brutal murder of an entire family in the dead of night by one of their own captivated public imagination. In the years that followed, this case inspired books and a series of movies, collectively known as the Amityville Horror, which blurred the lines between horror fiction and the real-life tragedy. Similarly, the Tate and Libyanka murders became less about the victims and more about sensationalism and exploitation. By 1981, violent crimes had been on the rise for several decades, leading to an increasingly desensitized public that favored a lock-them-up-and-throw-away-the-key approach to criminals. The knowledge that Sister Benz had been murdered on Halloween, combined with a psychic's vision of a man with a painted face, further convinced many that the crime was an act of Satanism. Newspaper reporters at the time, and even some today, continued to disseminate incorrect information regarding the timing of Sister Benz's murder. The particular date is significant due to the fact that Sister Benz was killed after midnight in the early mornings of Halloween, rather than on the night of Halloween itself. This lent credence to the idea of a deranged individual in Halloween attire committing murder as part of some satanic ritual. On August 3, 1982, the process of jury selection commenced for Johnny Frank Garrett's trial. Then, on Wednesday, August 25th, the trial began. During the trial, Johnny Frank Garrett's mother and half-sister provided testimony in his defense. On Monday, August 30th, Charlotte Cameron, his mother, and her 14-year-old daughter, Janet, took the stand. They both testified that Johnny had been with them at the family home on the night of the murder. Janet stated that she and Johnny had stayed up late playing checkers, engaging in conversation, and listening to music between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 3 a.m. Janet affirmed that Johnny had remained inside the house with her and had not gone outside. Charlotte Cameron recounted how Janet and Johnny had stayed up late, requiring her to repeatedly ask them to lower the music volume throughout the night. However, the assistant prosecutor challenged Janet's testimony, insinuating that she was only crying because she was being untruthful. In response, Johnny Frank Garrett stood up to confront him, but his defense attorney persuaded him to sit back down. The alibi provided by Charlotte and Janet conflicted with the police supplementary report mentioned in Part 1. According to that report, a neighbor had suspected Johnny Frank Garrett of prowling, leading to a call to the police. Two officers in a patrol car followed a man who matched the description of the prowler. They briefly lost sight of him, but later found a man, resembling the one they had been pursuing, standing outside of the Garrett residence. 
This man was aggressively striking a bush outside the house with a large stick. The patrolman had not engaged in conversation with him at the time, but later identified him as Johnny Frank Garrett. This incident, reported by the police, was said to have occurred around midnight on Friday, October 30th, just a few hours before Sister Benz's murder. It's worth noting that Johnny Frank Garrett's arrest coincided with Parter County's recent acquisition of a new piece of technology. In 1976, a physicist named Ronald Menzel had developed an Archon laser device that promised to revolutionize fingerprint recognition. The groundbreaking invention would eventually find widespread use worldwide and be recognized as a significant achievement in Canadian chemistry during the 20th century by the Chemical Institute of Canada in 1981. At that time, only four similar devices existed in the United States. Shortly after the tragic event of Sister Benz's murder, the Potter County Sheriff's Department proudly acquired one of these laser devices. The introduction of this laser technology marked a notable advancement in law enforcement, enabling the detection of fingerprints on surfaces that previously posed challenges for fingerprint recovery. Johnny Frank Garrett's defense team faced a daunting task in explaining how those fingerprints recovered from Sister Benz's room could be attributed to Johnny Frank Garrett. Among these fingerprints were a left palm print and a left middle fingerprint lifted from a bent butter knife discovered under the bed as well as a left ring fingerprint taken from the bed's headboard. While no blood was found on the butter knife or no biological evidence, the striations on the bed sheets suggested that a knife had been used to cause them. However, it remained unclear whether the bent butter knife was a specific instrument responsible or if it could have been another knife, such as a steak knife found in the convent driveway, which had been recovered. Regarding the butter knife, one of the defense team's lawyers pointed out, although it had been presented as evidence, the district attorney failed to provide a convincing explanation of why it was bent or how it might have been employed in the murder. It seemed to be merely presented in the courtroom without a clear purpose, allowing the jurors to form their own opinions about its relevance. Pathologist Ralph Urban testified during the trial, suggesting that the butter knife could have caused multiple gouge wounds on Sister Benz's throat. However, Erdman also faced scrutiny due to inconsistency in his testimony. He was unable to determine the time of death because Sister Benz's body had already been embalmed by the time he had conducted the autopsy. There were discrepancies in his account of what had happened to a sperm sample taken from Sister Benz's body. At times, he stated that the sample was misplaced or discarded, while at other times he claimed that it was so minuscule that it was essentially non-existent. This inconsistency meant that the sperm sample could not be tested for blood type, which could have either exonerated or further implicated Johnny Frank Garrett. Police Sergeant Walt Yeager also testified, recounting a statement from Garrett in which he claimed that Sister Benz had awakened while Garrett was in her room. Garrett asserted that he had choked her until she lost consciousness, and admitted to having intercourse with her. It's noteworthy that pathologist Ralph Erdman emphasized that Sister Benz was already deceased when these events occurred. During this period, one might ponder how a pathologist, unable to determine the time of death due to environmental factors, could confidently assert that an individual was already deceased when a sexual assault occurred. On Tuesday, August 31st, Johnny Frank Garrett took the stand in his own defense, 
a decision that always carries inherent risks. The decision to have a defendant testify requires a meticulous evaluation of its pros and cons, taking into account numerous factors. Typically, allowing the defendant to testify is not the standard practice in legal proceedings. It's worth noting that following Johnny Frank Garrett's arrest, a detective claimed that he had swiftly confessed to the murder of Sister Tadea Benz. However, the confession was unsigned, denied by Garrett, and lacked any recording evidence, rendering it inadmissible in accordance with the Texas law. Yet, there was a caveat. If Johnny Frank Garrett took the stand and provided testimony contradicting the confession's contents, the prosecution could then introduce the confession as evidence before the jury. This presented a significant challenge for the defense as they needed to offer a plausible explanation for Garrett's fingerprints being discovered in the murder victim's bedroom. Johnny Frank Garrett's fingerprints remained a significant hurdle and his legal team determined that only he could potentially offer a credible explanation for their presence in the murder victim's room. While on the stand... Johnny informed the court that he had been in Sister Tadea Benz's room, but he was not present when she was killed. Instead, he admitted that he had visited the convent the day prior with the intention of stealing various items. According to Johnny Frank Garrett's account, around lunchtime on October 30th, he gained entry to the convent through the front door. He asserted that he did not encounter anyone and proceeded to take a small butter knife from the kitchen before going upstairs. He stated his intent was to steal stereo equipment and crucifixes, and he used the butter knife to unlock internal doors and drawers. Garrett explained that the knife became bent when he used it in an attempt to pry open a locked drawer. He believed the fingerprints found on the headboard resulted from his positioning himself while reaching for a crucifix on the wall. However, the credibility of Garrett's claims was challenged when the nuns from the convent provided their testimonies. They stated that they would typically be having lunch at that time of the day, making it highly unlikely for Garrett to enter the kitchen undetected. Additionally, they noted that the front door was generally kept locked during the time of day, with the nun typically stationed at the front office near the entrance. The confession was notably brief and lacked both the signature and specific details. It read as follows. I am Johnny Frank Garrett, 17 years old, residing at 4000 Northeast 18th Street with my mother. On October 31st, 1981, around 1.30 a.m., while under the influence of whiskey and having consumed two hits of acid, I learned that some nuns possessed valuable stereos in their quarters. With this knowledge, I went to the convent, broke a window on the ground floor. I proceeded upstairs, entered a room, and encountered a nun in bed. She appeared as though she might scream, so I restricted her airway until she lost consciousness. As I engaged in sexual activity with her, I exited the convent using the same route of entry. It's important to note that law enforcement documented the reading of Miranda rights to Johnny Frank Garrett, but did not record the actual confession. There was a significant focus on public hair samples found on Sister Tadea's body at the convent crime scene. These hairs were collected from various locations on her body, including her mouth. During the trial, an FBI agent testified that multiple pubic hairs found in the room matched the racial and physical characteristics of Johnny Frank Garrett or another individual. 
The agent emphasized that these hair samples could not definitively identify a specific person and could only provide a general indication of race and physical traits. It's worth mentioning that early newspaper reports inaccurately described these pubic hairs as black, similar to the hair samples initially sent to the FBI, along with a memo indicating law enforcement was seeking a black or Cuban suspect based on the physical evidence. The testimony also addressed prison trustees, inmates entrusted with specific responsibilities within the prison system. Trustees received special privileges for monitoring fellow inmates and enforcing authority within the prison system, including the use of violence as a form of punishment for rule violations. Notably, the trustee system was phased out during the 1980s. Lonnie Watley, a trustee incarcerated at the Potter County Jail simultaneously with Johnny Frank Garrett, testified about Garrett's initial reluctance to admit to the murder, followed by his eventual confession. Following the conclusion of the trial, the jury deliberated for less than an hour before returning a guilty verdict. In response, Johnny Frank Garrett exclaimed, I did not murder her. Subsequently, he sat expressionless in the courtroom with Johnny Frank Garrett and his mother, Charlotte, embracing one another and shedding tears. The verdict was accepted at face value. He can understand why the jury found Johnny Frank Garrett guilty of Sister Today's assault and murder in the convent. Several factors contributed to this decision. The confession, the prowling incident, Garrett's history and behavior, as well as hair samples, from back in 1981. Texas juries in death penalty cases face a difficult choice between life without parole or sentencing the person found guilty of capital murder to death. They had to weigh the risk of the convicted person potentially being released from prison and posing a serious threat to society in the future. This was a challenging position for them. Regrettably for Johnny Frank Garrett, his defense team did not adequately defend him They failed to hire a private investigator, despite having the funds and means to do so. They also neglected to investigate Garrett's claim of being at the convent the day before the murder, or whether he had a history of visiting the convent. Additionally, they did not object to pathologist Ralph Erdman's colleague serving as a juror, nor did they raise concerns about Nathan Shackelford, Judge Jerry Shackelford's nephew, being involved in the case as a punishment witness. Coleus and Jordan did not enlist experts to counter the state's experts, nor did they bring up the other women who had been assaulted in Amarillo, including Narni Box Bryson. The loss of the sperm sample was not addressed, and no independent testing was requested before knowledge of the sample being lost. Blood droplets found inside Sister Today's room, believed to be from the killer, and fingerprints in the bedroom belonging to the two unidentified individuals were not adequately presented in court. In fact, the only witness on the defense's behalf were Johnny Frank Garrett's family and Garrett himself. Most perplexingly, the juries did not present the alternative theory involving a Cuban suspect, a Hispanic male who had an altercation with a security guard outside the convent the night of the murder. This omission left Johnny Frank Garrett's trial representation lacking or, some might argue, inadequate. During the punishment phase, witnesses were brought in to highlight Johnny Frank Garrett's potential danger to society, including Judge Jerry Shackelford and Garrett's former school teacher Carol Moore. 
After the conviction and penalty phase, Bishop L.T. Matheson emphasized the importance of respecting all life, even that of the accused, instead of condemning them to death. He called attention to societal issues and problems, and Sister Viola Barker expressed her reluctance to rejoice in the death sentence. Sister Viola explained that receiving that sentence was deeply emotional. She believed that if Sister Tadea were still alive, she would be the first to forgive and pardon Johnny Frank Garrett. She was convinced that she has already done so, and therefore everyone also must forgive him, and all the sisters do forgive him. In stark contrast, District Attorney Danny Hill had a vastly different reaction to the sentence. He stated, Johnny Frank Garrett is a prime example of why the state legislature authorized the death penalty. For a year, he contemplated the idea of having sexual relations with the deceased elderly woman. Even Johnny Frank Garrett's own defense attorney, Bill Coleus, made a rather damning statement remarking, Johnny Frank Garrett is an incredibly fitting suspect for any crime, particularly this one. He has a history of prior troubles, a limited intellectual capacity, and a propensity for theft, burglary, and alcoholism, all at the age of 17. However, Coleus went on to say, There is simply no evidence linking Johnny Frank Garrett to Sister Today's tragic event. Do not find him guilty solely because he was present in the room. Following the trial, Johnny Frank Garrett was transferred to Huntsville to await sentencing. He was assigned an appellate lawyer named Bruce Adler, who allegedly provided little assistance to his client. Eventually, Adler dropped Garrett's case and began working for District Attorney Danny Hill. What a coincidence. Over the course of the next six years, Garrett would be represented by at least six different appellate lawyers. Despite numerous concerns raised during the trial, no new evidence emerged to prompt a reevaluation of Johnny Frank Garrett's case. On November 28, 1991, the Texas Court of Appeals denied Johnny Frank Garrett's application. One of the judges on the Court of Appeals, Judge Clinton, filed a dissenting opinion which, while somewhat technical, expressed important points. Judge Clinton argued that youth alone should not be considered a significant mitigating factor and because the jury was not provided the option of prescribing a sentence less than death based on this factor, Garrett's death sentence violated the Eighth Amendment. Judge Clinton believed Garrett deserved a new trial. Garrett argued that former Article 3771 had effectively prevented him from presenting mitigating evidence regarding his history of family violence, substance abuse, limited intelligence, and potential brain damage. This evidence was critical but could only be presented to his detriment under the previous law. He also claimed that his trial attorneys were ineffective for failing to investigate and present this evidence. His defense team had arranged for a psychologist, Dr. Cannon, to assess him before trial, and Dr. Cannon's test had indicated that Garrett had low to average intelligence. Dr. Cannon's assessment also led him to conclude that the applicant would pose a further threat to society, this important to note that Dr. Cannon had not been informed of any history of child abuse and had not been provided access to the applicant's records from the Texas Department of Corrections. One of the trial attorneys for the applicant testified during the hearing that a strategic decision had been made not to utilize Dr. Cannon's testimony during the trial. The rationale behind this decision was that Dr. Cannon's testimony would likely have been detrimental to the applicant's case. It was believed 
that in the context of the specific issues presenting during the trial, Dr. Cannon's testimony would have been more advantageous to the prosecution than to Mr. Garrett. In response to the questions during the hearing, the trial attorney confirmed that they chose not to use Dr. Cannon's testimony because it would have harmed the defendant more than it would have aided him given the issues at hand. They also acknowledged that even if the law had allowed for the presentation of mitigating evidence, it wouldn't have been helpful in this case since there was no such evidence to present. During this hearing, Judge Clinton emphasized that prior to the United States Supreme Court's decision in Franklin v. Lionel, the applicant's legal counsel had not made tactical decisions while considering any mitigating evidence that extended beyond the scope of the special issues outlined in Article 3771. Essentially, they had not delved into any mitigating evidence beyond what was directly related to those specific issues. Judge Clinton further stated that he interpreted this situation to mean that the applicant's legal counsel did not consider mitigating evidence apart from the predefined criteria. He asserted that this failure to investigate, given the circumstances, amounted to ineffective assistance of counsel. At the hearing, the applicant's half-sister provided crucial testimony. She recounted a troubled family history, revealing that the applicant's mother had been married five times and that his biological father had disowned him. She described various instances of abuse inflicted upon the applicant by different stepfathers, including severe beatings, cigarette burns, sexual abuse. This abuse had started at a young age, and the witness detailed how the applicant had endured physical and emotional trauma throughout his upbringing. The half-sister also disclosed that the applicant had begun drinking at the age of 11 or 12, frequently consumed alcohol, smoked marijuana, and with substances like crystal LSD, angel dust, and speed. One incident involved an iron gate falling on him while he was intoxicated, resulting in injuries and convulsions. Additionally, the applicant believed there was a ghost in the house and claimed to have conversations with his deceased grandmother and aunt. During the subsequent proceedings, the applicant underwent a comprehensive evaluation by another psychologist, Dr. Wendell Dickerson. Dr. Wendell Dickerson also analyzed the findings from a psychiatrist and professor at New York University Medical Center, Dr. Dorothy Lewis, who had examined the applicant. Dr. Lewis conducted a comprehensive study and evaluated the results of neurological tests administered by Dr. Ellis Richardson. Based on the extensive data available, Dr. Dickerson arrived at the conclusion that the applicant was suffering from schizophrenia, likely from the paranoid subtype and chronic brain syndrome. He characterized these conditions as complications stemming from behavioral and cognitive issues, as well as other manifestations linked to some form of brain damage. Dr. Dickerson's assessment indicated that the applicant was one of the most profoundly and pervasively disabled individuals he had encountered in his 25 to 28 years of practice. In his written evaluation, Dr. Dickerson suggested that the applicant's condition could have been diagnosed at the time of the trial. The diagnosis could have been made the diagnosis could have been made considering the nature of the mitigating evidence presented during the hearing and the information that was accessible at the trial's juncture. With these factors considered and in play, one would think that this is sufficient evidence to cast doubt in the jury's verdict. Even if defense had consciously and knowingly decided not to address this evidence, the situation 
essentially amounts to a no-win scenario where the defense was compelled to make a tactical decision to avoid aiding the state in meeting its burden of proof. In essence, the defense was unaware of the choice it was making by failing to investigate and utilize this critical evidence. Regardless of the specific circumstances, the appropriate course of action is to overturn the death sentence and grant a new trial. Dr. Dickerson concluded his report on Johnny Frank Garrett by stating that all available sources concurred that Mr. Garrett was a severely impaired individual. His emotional development was traumatic. These factors significantly contributed to his tendency to misread events and react inappropriately. He appeared to be emotionally disconnected and had impairment in his thoughts, feelings, and actions. Many of these indicators could likely have been observed during his early education as evidenced by his emplacement in special education classes. These characteristics were reflected directly or indirectly in reports from his legal counsel, who aimed to avoid labels and acted in the best interest of the child within the civil rights context. In January 1990, the Supreme Court reviewed Johnny Frank Garrett's case and ultimately rejected it. Well, guys, we've come to the end of this chapter in our true crime audiobook series. Don't miss out on our upcoming episode as we conclude Amarillo in Peril, Part 3. In the next installment, we'll not only delve even deeper into the intricate details of Johnny Frank Garrett's case, but also embark on a chilling exploration of the malevolent curse that seems to linger ominously around it. It's an episode you won't want to miss, so stay tuned for an unforgettable journey through the darkest murder mysteries of Amarillo, Texas. The sources cited in this series of episodes encompass a range of reputable references, including Amarillo Globe News, Amarillo Globe News Archives, News Channel 10, Amarillo Public Library Archives, The Last Word Documentary, Dallas Morning News, and The Fort Worth Telegram. Until next time.